this show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 170 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Paul Pates, CEO of Innovative Disruption. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Paul, you reached out to us a, a while back um, because you had seen we'd interviewed, I think it was Thomas Thurston. Yeah, episode 76, wasn't it? Uh, modeling Disruption. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have a completely different uh, approach to the concept. Um I don't know, I guess why don't we start by telling us a little bit about how your approach differs or how you model it different and also maybe how you got involved in the whole area. Right. So I, I think uh, at, the, at a high level, we view it very, very much the same way. We've, we've read the same books. We've studied the same case studies. Um, and I, th- I think uh, in terms of what makes disruption happen, um, we would probably agree on 99% of, of the particulars. Um, the one case that, that jumped out at me, um, and I think it was in your interview with, with Thomas, was uh, about the Apple iPhone. And, and in fact, um, it isn't just Thomas, but uh, Clay Christensen himself, for a good 10 years, uh, thought that the Apple products were not disruptive, even though they, um, one after another, rapidly grew to 70 80 90% market share, which is almost unheard of in, uh, in a modern context, and certainly in any competitive industry, it's just, it's unheard of. Um, and what struck me, and I, and I listened to, to what he said and the, and the attributes that he was looking at, and and also um, similarly at the ones that uh, that Clay looked at in, in his work because I I obviously followed him uh, and it struck me that they were they were missing um, a key a key thing they were it wasn't that the, that we viewed things dramatically differently but that um, but that the way you interpret uh, the the attribute makes a difference. So, for example, um, one of the one of the important things with this with disruptive innovation is the idea that you uh, are trying to uh, trying to create an inferior product for a um, for a less desirable audience than or target market than the incumbents are doing. And so, basically, if you're if you're building a low end disruption, you you want to come in below all the competition in the market. And if you're building a new market disruption, then you want to, you want to create something which is substantially different and creates a new market. And if you look at the, the products that, that Apple in particular won with, um, the iPod, the iPhone, now the iPad, all of them came into markets that were established to some degree or another. There were at least 13 or 14 different um mp3 players when the ipod was introduced uh there were myriad 
cell phones and and dozens of smartphones already in the market, and obviously BlackBerry being the the dominant one at the time. And uh, and with the iPad, there have been tablet computers since at least 1995, if not before. Uh, so the question is, well, well, they weren't creating a new market, and they certainly weren't low end innovations. They didn't. Um, they were priced above the competition. They were designed above the competition. They were high-end products. So, so the question is, how does that fit the theory? And I think this is, this is where um, others missed a, a very uh, – I would say it was a hole in the theory, but it was a, it was a way to interpret the theory. And uh, so, so the question is – when when you can, when you say the words low end or or inferior to what's in the market, what do you mean? And what's important to consider is that inferior doesn't mean that it's it's a lower quality product. It doesn't mean that it's um, it's necessarily you know the worst product in the market. What what it means is that on the the things that customers value that it's it's missing some important attribute um and so uh well let, let's pick the the uh the iPod when uh, when it came out it was missing all kinds of knobs and dials and controls that that uh, there there'd been you know a good 10 years of competition in MP3 players um and they were very sophisticated uh but also very complicated devices. There was no standardization. There was there, there were a hundred different ways, um, but the, the complexity made them impossible to use. And so, on the one hand, you could say, "Well, it was inferior. All it had was that that sort of circle where you you, you ran your finger around, and that was how you controlled it." But uh, but on the other hand, it was a hundred times more elegant. Uh, nicer design you felt good holding it it was just it was um it was superior on the attributes that customers valued um while at the same time sacrificing a lot of the features that the existing market had um had accepted as being necessary um and, and so you know actually i thought about this quite a lot the one, one of the things that we've made a made an assumption is that if something is lower priced or or um, is missing features that people expect to see does that make it does that make it a lesser product or can can you actually disrupt with a higher priced product and and the the answer that I've found is that yes you absolutely can can disrupt with a higher priced product it doesn't have to be the lowest in the market what it has to do is satisfy the unmet or underserved needs better than the competitive solutions and in the process create a new market. So the, the simplicity of the, um, of the iPad, sorry, of the, of the iPod. And then about a year and a half, two years later, when, um, when iTunes was paired with it, that those two things together made the, the use of digital music so much simpler that it created a market 10 times the size of what had existed before. 
your grandmother could use an MP3 player before the i before the iPod. Nobody could, um, other than techies or people that were prepared to deal with how do I cut my own, you know, how do I rip my own CDs? Uh, how, how do I get that in into a, a form that I can download to the machine? And so on. And that was just far too complicated. So by simplifying both the device and the software and making it um, almost a trivial piece of uh, of equipment and, and at the same time with with iTunes, what Apple successfully did that no one had done before was make the the ability to get your music legally and virus free, which was a big problem in the in the 90s with mp3 players you could you could get your stuff from sharing sites but you were as likely to download a virus as you were a legitimate piece of music and and what did it mean to be legitimate i mean in those days it wasn't um you know it wasn't clear-cut that if you were ripping your your music that that was you know something that the uh the, the music industry was was thrilled about and um you know, Apple made the whole process of of getting your music and getting digital music onto your machine legal, and I think that that can't be underestimated. So, on the one hand, they were offering a more complete, complicated, expensive solution, but on the other hand, they made it so simple and elegant to use that it was it was bound to disrupt the market. And you look at the the pattern of Apple innovations over the last 15 years since um, since Jobs came back. And you see the same thing with, with the, uh, the iPhone. Everybody said that couldn't possibly um, win. And, uh, and it's hard to even imagine that today. But at the time, they were widely criticized for lack of a physical keyboard. And how, how could anybody use a phone without a keyboard? Or sorry, any, an email device without a keyboard? And uh, and they were also widely criticized for uh, not being suitable for a corporate environment where where you had to have security and and you know the blessing of the IT department and and of course those were things that I said well that's that's the old market the new market is not the old market the new market is consumers and um, people who want to have cool devices that integrate the internet beautifully. So I think the it's really about interpreting the theory correctly and understanding how how disruption actually takes place in the market. So it's not just about you know the the at least the my sort of simplistic understanding of of, of the theory when we talked to um, Thomas was cheaper, worse, but always getting better. And what you're saying is that it doesn't have to be worse. It can be more expensive. It can be better in some ways, but it's going after a, maybe a new user or, an, or a previously unmet need. Is that? Yeah, that that is essentially correct. Um, but it, you also have to be very careful when you use words like worse and um, and inferior because they imply a value judgment. And what we're really talking about is there are certain features or attributes or characteristics of a product that the incumbent players have taken to be sort of the, the barrier to entry. This is, this is what's required in order to 
have a product in this category. And at the same time, those those companies are serving a class of users who deem these to be critical features. So when the iPhone first came out, as a for example, um, it, it was it was very difficult to get it accepted by the IT department to connect to your email server. Um, but that didn't stop people from buying them. And so on the on the characteristic of of being secure and attaching to um, to my corporate servers, the iPhone was inferior. But on every other feature that the consumer cared cared about, it was superior. Which, and the history of of disruptive products, they they will always enter the market um, and and be opposed actively or or be poo pooed by the incumbents. Um, as being uh, inferior. And in fact, if you go back and look, I was actually just looking at some some stuff from RIM um, from 2008 and, and late 2007, shortly after the iPhone was released. And they were still sitting pretty. Their sales were going up 60%. They were, and they were saying, you know, there, there's no way that, uh, that, this will ever be accepted in a corporate environment because it's not secure. We have a secure niche. And that's exactly the, the pattern that if you're going to be a disruptive player, you want the incumbent to think that. Can the same thing ever happen in reverse? For example, when WebOS came out, it was lauded uh, by the tech press saying what a great innovation it was. But of course, that didn't really ever go anywhere. Te- technical innovations in and of themselves aren't disruptive. There's, there's nothing... Um, about any technology, for that matter, that, that makes it disruptive. It's the application of the technology, and it's what um, what user needs does it satisfy that are they're unmet or underserved. So if if you bring any any technology, in fact, BlackBerry is doing this. The, the folks at Rim are doing this again today. You know, they're they're projecting ahead and saying, oh, as soon as BlackBerry uh, version ten comes out and the new the new BBX or whatever they're calling it now um, is available. That's going to solve all our problems because it's better technology. Well, better technology is irrelevant, right? The market is decided. The market standardized on one thing. What capabilities are you going to offer me that nobody else can do? And are those capabilities that I'm going to, going to incur the cost of switching for? So there's, there's a tremendous inertia now and, and, the the folks at BlackBerry continue to do the things that got them in trouble in the first place, which is ignore the disruptor and think that it's about technology because it isn't. Right. And you run a consultancy, right? You work with companies who I would imagine are on either side of the coin, a company that's attempting to be disruptive or increase their chances of being disruptive versus companies that may be in the process of being disrupted and need help to figure out how to counter that. Is that is that the kind of work that you do? Yes, absolutely. And how how do you? Well, I'd like to hear um, um, from both perspectives. So, from the perspective of an incumbent who's being disruptive, let's say it's BlackBerry to use them as an example. I mean, what would you say to them? How would you work with them? 
how would you advise them and, and what would be the barriers that you'd have to overcome? Well, when I start with the barriers, because I think that's the, the significant thing about companies that are being disrupted is that they will take their beliefs with them to the grave. Um, and they're, they're very hard to persuade that they need to change um, in order to, uh, in order to get undisrupted. Um, because one of the, one of the characteristics of an incumbent is that they keep on believing in what got them there in the first place. So they, you know, everybody starts with a, a theory of, of what the market needs and they know what features and, and what, what attributes of, of their technology when they were pushing it allowed them to succeed in the first place. So, um, you know, the, there's no doubt that the, the folks at RIM still make good quality technology and they, they still are, you know, certainly from the uh, attaching to the, the corporate network, they're still a more secure product. Um, and they continue to believe that if they just catch up in some features and and make it better, they will they will be able to come back in the market. And you look at some of the things that they've been saying, you know, they're they're pushing on software developers to build apps for the for the BlackBerry today, and and they're out there heavily promoting that and saying, you know, our our developers make more money. Well, they may do, but that's not going to change the fact that Apple sold half as many iPhones in the fourth quarter of last year as BlackBerry's complete installed base. Um, and 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 that, that's just that's just Apple. What about Android? So so with those those two um, things are really the the competing ecos- ecosystems in the market now. And the only way that a, that a BlackBerry could come back would be to identify a completely different market. They can't be a Me Too, and they can't play catch-up with, with Android and iPhone. What they would have to do is, is actually come out with a, a completely different target niche and optimize for that niche. So, for example, you know... This is something I would have recommended to them a year or two ago. I'm not sure it would still work today, uh, but I, I would have told them that you know your best opportunity is to um, is to design the BlackBerry because you've already got some features in it that are that are pretty darn good for this. Optimize it to be a social media appliance. Forget about it being a phone. Forget about it being email. That's yesterday's news. Let's be a social media appliance, and we everything we do is designed to make um, tweeting or posting to uh, to posters or or doing a doing a podcast or a blog or, or looking at my stuff on LinkedIn or Facebook. That's what this toy is for, and it happens to have a phone in it. You know, I can still do email, but what it's designed to do better than anybody else is to target people that are social media fanatics that have to be able to access it anywhere, anytime. Now, I don't know for a fact that that would have been a, a viable market, but I can, I can assure you it would have been a better, a better strategy than anything they've done in the what last couple of years. What have they done exactly? Yeah, what, what, what have they been doing? 
well, they keep trying to make a better keyboard or, um, you know, they, they, they've been playing catch up. They've just basically been sticking with their same ideology and moving forward on that and just trying to improve it rather than sidestep into it. it they have basically, they need to pivot is what you're saying. Yes, desperately. So it's almost like they're, they're, they're locked in, like they, they're, they're heading for a cliff on a car, in their car and they can't turn the steering wheel. And they're just, it's just inevitable. It's almost and like they're going to hit that edge at some point. It's inevitable unless they target a new market uh, as, and basically become a new market disruptor. They'd have, they have to disrupt all over again in order to be successful. But that seems like that's very rare that you see big companies do that. They almost, like that's by the nature of large companies that they're, they almost always lack the, I don't know, the bureaucratic flexibility, political will, the innovative DNA, I don't know, whatever you want to call it to make those hard choices. I mean, I, and I'd like to hear, you know, if you have some examples of companies that have made that switch, I think IBM may be moving into the services business might be one example. Um, but I don't know, do you have, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that possible? I was going to say IBM and, if, and to my knowledge, they're the only large company that has successfully, um, repositioned the company and moved into into essentially a brand new space um <laughs> apart from apple i guess yeah it, it apple's apple's a bit different in in that uh they never really changed although you know the, obviously the company changed dramatically in terms of vision and and approach to the market when steve came back and and in, in fact if you go back to the 80s when the when the Macintosh was introduced and the Apple II was introduced, those were both very um, innovative products in their time. But the, I think what what um, what happened in that time was Steve had a had a much less mature vision of of uh, what it took to be successful, and he learned more by getting turfed out of the company. And and going through that humiliation and and you know watching his successors try to right the ship and pushing it farther down, he never gave up on the vision of I'm doing this for the customer. I'm I'm not doing this to make money. I'm doing it because I want to make a beautiful product. I want to I want to be the best for this purpose, and I want to absolutely make the customers delighted. And that was always his priority. And I think that that um, that plus understanding. Uh, I mean, w- one thing that he talked about back in '97 when he came back to the company was about building a, um, a building a, a a hub around the, the Macintosh is a hub, and having um, the idea of digital digital lifestyle appliances centered around that hub, and he never wavered on that. If you look at everything they released over the last 15 years, that, that was all about making the Mac the center of a digital world, which is one of the reasons why the Mac has also come back and is now the dominant PC product. Um, so it, it is about, uh, you know, targeting an unmet need in the market, even, even with the old Macintosh technology. We just um, touched on IBM. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about their transformation, how that was possible, um, what their thinking was, and how it played out. Yeah, so so IBM uh, 
went through similar down period. Um, they they were certainly beaten up in the in the eighties um, by the whole mini computer revolution, and uh, you know they 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 saw the PC coming, and they they obviously were brought out the IBM PC and and uh, introduced it as a more open technology in, when compared with Apple, which was the dominant product when the PC came out. Um, so, you know, I, IBM was was not doing... Uh, I mean, they were still profitable and they were still growing, but that, that doesn't mean that they weren't being disrupted. So through the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, IBM was was on that path downwards. Um, where if if they hadn't righted the ship, they they could be in the same position as Kodak and and Rim is is rapidly sliding downhill. Um, what they did successfully was uh, bring in a new CEO who was able um, basically to say, look, you know, the, the mainframe business this this is not going to sustain us. We've got to we've got to become about making these things work and, and the services. And um, obviously they still sell computers and they sell a, a ton of them, but it's their, their focus is on, on the service and the customer need. What, why are they buying, you know, a mainframe server? How do I make that work in their environment? How do I make it the best solution for them? Um, and that was a, that was a huge Huge change for them culturally. I mean, they 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 downsized um, through the mid and late nineties. They they must have lost a couple hundred thousand people um, going through that transition, and and that was uh, it was a huge and painful change, but obviously um, has made them again a very successful and growing company. Uh, so they are, I think, today still the dominant IT services provider that isn't based in India. So we've had a lot of discussion about the larger companies like Apple and IBM, but what I'm wondering is how your take on disruption theory affects small startups like Plugio or other people who are just just, just about <laughs> to start getting this. Then there's micro small. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, well, just people who are just getting started, yeah. Well, I think, well, I think what you hear from- Spectrum. There's the five and ten or twenty person startup as well as the you know the side project startup. I mean, yeah, good point. Yeah, we hear that whole range. If you have any thoughts, yeah. So so disruption is actually far more applicable to startups. Um, and, and in fact, you know, it, it's easy to talk about the big name companies because everybody knows who they are. It's much harder harder to talk about a plugio and have people recognize, oh yeah, they're the leader in in what I've never heard of them before. Um. But when when you're trying to design something to be disruptive, it's much easier to do that as a startup than as a than as a big company because you know you're starting with a clean slate of paper. You, you're competing against against nothing, or or against um, you know a, a need that you know exists, and you're, that's what you're designing for. Um, so. You know, as a as a small company, um, I I would always say, uh, you know, you, it it really depends how how you're coming to me. If you're coming to me, you've already got a technology developed, um, and we've got to position it for for a market or tweak it so that it 
so that it works. That's a that's a more difficult assignment than saying I, I see this hole in the market. How do I build a, a potentially disruptive innovation to satisfy that need? And so, designing from a blank sheet of paper, I would say you always are going to try to introduce a low end disruption if you can, because if you can come in at at least a sustainable three times cost advantage. Um, and the bigger the cost advantage, the better. So so if you've got a patented technology or something that enables you to solve a problem for, for that big a price differential, you will almost always disrupt. Um, if you can solve problems of accessibility or convenience or ease of use um, together with price, uh, you will almost always disrupt. Um, you want to make sure that you're targeting a job that the customer needs to have done. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, th- those are some of the attributes. There's, there's a, a number that, um, that matter and it really depends on what the, what the technology or services, so how, how do you design the business model to best leverage the kind of market that you're going after? And I think what, what, uh, Many technology folks um, tend to overlook as being critical is is that it isn't about the technology. It's it's really about the marketing and the business strategy. So when I'm when I'm um, designing something to be disruptive, I have to know who am I targeting that for, what are their unmet needs, um, what is a complete solution for that segment is it a big enough segment that it's it's worth going after um is it something that the competition isn't going to come after me because they don't perceive if the competitor perceives you to be a threat from day one they will they will do everything possible to squash you and they've got the resources to do it so you want to stay out of their line of sight as much as possible when you introduce something to uh uh, to a market which is which is the reason that you target an undesirable segment um, and undesirable can be, you know, when we talk about freemium, when, when I'm, when I'm offering a product for free, I'm by almost by definition targeting in an undesirable segment. So it, it really, uh, it, it comes down to, to building those attributes in it and looking at what, what you've got, who, who is your, um, who's your product designed for. And, and Justin, you know, you, you and I talked about, Plugio in um, I think early December. Yeah, and and uh, you know I made a number of suggestions about some of the attributes that I thought were were potentially leading you down a path of not being disruptive and, and competing head on against some some people that were already pretty big. Yeah, and I think that's that's really the key is is um, you know making sure that you're satisfying a unique need. Uh, and doing it better than anybody else can, and that and that you aren't um, encroaching on the big guy's space, at least not from day one. So, uh, just as an example, could you tell us a little bit about your advice to Justin on the on Plegio? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things that was clear about Plugio, and and I, you know, I'm actually using it, and a very happy user. <laughs> uh, that's nice to hear. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's doing it's doing exactly what I want it to do. Um, now, I I don't know that I'm the perfect user um, for for designing a disruptive product for if that was your if that's your your goal. And one thing I should say is that a product doesn't have to be disruptive to be successful. There there are lots of companies, lots of products that go into markets that are saturated. And they just do a better job of customer service, or you know that they can eke out a very profitable living, and and uh, you know there's nothing wrong with that. The, what we're talking about is you want to be disruptive if you want to be game changing. If you want to be the next Google or the next Twitter, then then you do care about being disruptive. So some of the things that um, this struck me was the. You know, the, it was complex, um, and it looked like it, it obviously has been designed for power users, and and so when and, and I know that Justin built it a lot for himself, and you you can see some of that. So it, it's it's got some really cool features in it, but it's also targeted at you know the elite of the elite who have a hundred thousand followers on Twitter, um, and and. Uh, you know the, those kind of power users. You can probably count on your two hands. Um, maybe maybe you need three or four hands, but but it's not a huge market. So so um, a lot of and, and I, I wasn't suggesting that you necessarily had to take away features, but you had to make it appear a lot simpler to use. And so there there was a lot of complexity there in the design. Um, a lot of really powerful features that that are very useful. Um, but it definitely needed some some cleaning up visually and a, a little more design elegance in terms of how I get from feature to feature. Um, and uh, you know, one thing that I, I I'm not sure that I, I said this in December, but that I would definitely recommend is choosing um, a, a, a choosing a purpose. So. I think I don't know if we talked about it in December, but I'm pretty sure Justin and I told you that I was using uh, Plugio in conjunction with Twitter and and another tool, uh, Paperly. And, and my purpose was to design um, uh, a daily uh, curated newsletter that's on my website and that I use to to tweet out to people. It's part of my branding, and so I was looking at the whole ecosystem of how does Plugio fit with, with Twitter and with what I'm doing with Paperly and with how I'm, you know, who I'm trying to attract as followers and who I'm following. So for me, it was about solving the bigger problem of, of that. I wasn't just concerned about, you know, building my Twitter followership because there's lots of, uh, there's lots of tools out there that can do that. But when I looked at that that mini ecosystem that I built for myself, Plugio was absolutely the perfect fit, and it was exactly the product that I was looking for. Um, you know, I think I, I said this when I when I found out. I was surprised that this is what Justin was building because I was actually in the middle of looking for a product just like that, and I tried I tried a bunch of other tools and and not found any of them to meet the need. So, if I was if I was uh, making a recommendation and I had a carte blanche, I, w- I would probably 
tell Justin to um, to to try to define a segment, and maybe maybe it is like me. There's 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 a lot of people out there that are trying to make sense of Twitter. Not not just not just um, get more followers, but to actually, uh, you know, I've got the, this fire hose of information coming at me, and and I guarantee you, I don't see you know, even 1% of all the tweets that the, of the people that I follow. And for me, the challenge is how do I organize all that information and, and extract the bits of it that are really useful both to me and to my followers. So, so curating from the tweet stream and from Facebook and from whatever other social tools you're, you're hooked up to is the critical challenge today for is the critical challenge for the internet frankly how do i um how would i organize this make sure that i that i personally get the valuable bits out and that i'm able to to share those with people that have similar interests and if you look at there there must be um you know i'll, I'll guarantee you there's a few hundred thousand people like me that are trying to do exactly that and that that if you were the best, absolute best at that, there isn't a, comp- a competitor for you. And Justin, have you um, taken any of this advice and, and changed strategy at all? I know you're sort of in the process of a, of a big relaunch with Company Fifty Two. Is 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 his uh, insight part of um, part of your work? Certainly, the base insight of the redesign and making everything a lot simpler and seem a lot more streamlined and also designing and building the new interface for mo- with mobile in mind with you know so that it'll work just as well on an iPad as it will on a standard browser um with easy to use buttons that that are kind of iPad style usage um so that basically um speaks to the easiness aspect the actual uh, curation aspect well another thing that um Paul had mentioned was about having more access to the free you know making the the free version easier and um, basically making it all easier to sign up. And also uh, I think the friend finding thing we had discussed, I may, I may make completely free because that would be quite disruptive because there's quite a big market for uh, growth following to follow <coughs> tools to follow your growth. So for example, um, I think the, I think the premium one friend adder is like $70 for that tool. So if I offered the same thing for free, that would be a disruption. Um, but I think this is my first real understanding of Paul talking about a curation tool. And he's, he's already said, he's saying that Plugio is working very well for him in that context. Um, I'd be interested to know if, if it needs improving as well in that context. Um, well, improving from, from a functional perspective versus from a, a targeting perspective are, are two different things. So functionally, even with the interface, which you know we, we both agree is not as elegant as what you're designing now, the new new interface is beautiful, and I, and I wish I could get my hands on it. <laughs> but but um, the old interface is kind of cumbersome, and it's it's um, you know it's definitely something that that a hardcore I need to service a hundred thousand followers um, kind of person would would appreciate and and be happy using um the problem for you being wanting to be disruptive is that that market isn't big enough um to be meaningful so so you know i don't i don't think in your redesign you're going to lose any of that power 
but you will open it up to being more accessible to a much larger audience. And, and that's, um, you know, that's, that's the key thing in, in making it easier to use and more intuitive. Um, as far as me using it now versus with the new interface, I, I think it will probably save me a little bit of work. It'll certainly appear friendlier, but I don't think it will necessarily change how powerful it is for what I'm using it for. Um, what would what would make it better was if it was if if you looked at curation tools like Scoopit and and Paperly and you know there's half a dozen of others but but you know those two leaders and you looked at your product being in that that ecosystem between Twitter and Facebook and and curation tools and my purpose is to is to support the person who's trying to. Um, who's trying to present this kind of information. You know, I'm, I'm trying to gather, select, distribute, and curate based on these, these attributes that I care about. So in my case, that's disruptive innovation. And if you, if you look at my newspaper, my, I, I can tell you, since I started using PlugU, my newspaper quality is probably 10 times what it was before I started using PlugU, and I do about a quarter of the work to get it done. You said your newspaper quality? What does that mean? Well, I create a daily newspaper. It's called the Innovative Disruption. Um, it's called Innovative Disruption. Oh, um, I see, I see. So you're able to get a lot more high-quality content as a source for your newspaper. Well, how do we access that newspaper? Not, not just, not just high-quality content, but, it, but it's, I, I'm finding the material that I want to put in it much more easily. And, and so, so when it, I mean, it's automatically generated uh, about 95% based on uh, filtering tweets and, and uh, you know, content that I provide myself. Um, the way you could find that, um, I, I can probably send you a link. It, it, it's got kind of a, a cryptic, um, a cryptic it- link, but there's, there's a version of it that's on my website as well, okay. and that's that's in the menu bar on the top of my website. So your website's innovativedisruption.com. Mm-hmm. So for anyone listening, go to innovativedisruption.com, and then in the menu bar, you can click on the in- Innovative the, Disruption Daily. That's correct. Okay, just looking at that so now. So uh, if, if you don't mind if we switch directions, I have a, another topic I'd like to cover that was in your uh, ebook. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned that um, you talk about the S and P five hundred, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you said something like the average, you know, growth rate is uh, or, or increase in, in return is like five point seven percent, and if you take out inflation at one point nine percent, then you get like what something like three point eight percent is the aggregate um, return. But if you if you analyze, if you just separate out the disruptive companies, they account for forty percent. Of that growth, or something like that. What what's what were your numbers and and how did how did you do that analysis? Yeah, so I I actually went and looked at sixty years worth of of Standard and Poor's um, growth tables, and I think the average was five point eight percent cumulative growth when you. Uh, when you flattened out the curve. So it obviously fluctuates quite a bit and you have big peaks and valleys and it, it doesn't look like a smooth curve. It looks like a 
um, like a jagged tooth kind of thing, like the stock market on any, any given day. But over a 60-year period, you average that out, it's it's a cumulative 5.8% growth rate. Um, over that same period, um, you know, I looked at inflation and I, I calculated it out and it was averaging, I think, 3.9% or 3.8%. And when you subtract one from the other, you you have the real growth rate of the Standard & Poor's 500 is is 1.9% over that 60-year period. And so that's, you know, that's the, that's okay. I mean, we, we think the economy is doing pretty good if it's growing at, at 2% on an annual basis. So that's, you know, that's about what, the, what that number says. But disruptive companies, I mean, uh, Apple went from, months away from bankruptcy to being the most valuable company on the planet in 15 years. Right. That's, that's the kind of growth that, that is stunning that, that disruptors routinely achieve. Now a company of that size to be doing it is, is extraordinary, but, but uh, typically disruptors are seeing at least a hundred percent growth. Um, and I, I think you know, the forty percent figure that I used is actually um, companies that are currently disruptive, or they're they're sort of ne- nearing the end of their period of active disruption, and they're actually capitalizing on on the uh, on the market ownership that they've attained in that period. They're they're going to grow at about a forty percent clip for five or ten years anyway. So, you know, when you, when you compare a forty percent growth rate. And we're not even talking about small companies when when you uh, use that kind of number. I mean, for a long time, Oracle, who's another disruptor, who is on the verge of being disrupted, um, for a long time, Oracle was growing at that kind of a rate of a hundred, you know, hundred plus percent in the eighties, and you know, forty fifty percent through most of the nineties, and you know, they've, they've kind of more or less stalled out now, but. Um, that kind of growth drives the stock market, um, and if you if you consider that the people that are in the in the S and P five hundred, and you look at look at the names, you know at least thirty forty percent of those companies um, were disruptors themselves within the last uh, within the last twenty or thirty years. And so that forty percent growth rate is factored into that, into that overall one point nine percent. So the the conclusion, and and I didn't go much further down this path, but it doesn't take a lot of mathematics to figure out that if disruptors are generating forty percent growth and the overall market is at one point nine, and that one point nine includes disruptors, that virtually all real growth is coming from disruption. Right. Right. Um, now, have you um, worked with uh, Clay Christensen uh, on this at all? I know that Thomas Thurston did some work with him. He had some kind of relationship. Have you worked with him? I mean, I imagine you guys are in the same space. So I don't know. Is there any interaction or how, how does that work? No, I have not worked directly with him. Okay. And the next question I might have is how did you get into this um business or create this kind of consultancy. I mean, it's, this is a really interesting area, but I'm, you know, be, I'd be, I think hearing how you ended up here would be, a, be interesting. Sure. 
Um, so, so I've been around for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I try not to have a lot of pictures of me hanging around, but you, you, you would see that I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, a 25 year old kid. Um, and back in the, back in the early eighties, I joined a, a technology company that, um, you know, had, had some really exciting, uh, development tools for software for, um, uh, for software reuse. And, you know, it was, we were very much like, like, you know, the Silicon Valley startups are today and like, like they have been forever. It was, um, the sort of place, you know, where people are as likely to be throwing, uh, throwing Frisbees around the office or, or wrestling on the floor as they are to be working at their, at their terminals. Um, and we, um, you know, we we were pretty convinced we were world beaters, and in fact, we we had a couple of um, a couple of innovations that that I thought, and that most of us thought we, we should have we should have won the market on. Um, so, for example, we were the first company to be able to offload mainframe development to a PC, and we had an an eighteen month lead on. Um, on any competition that was able to do that. Now, we we uh, did a good business around that, but we never succeeded in owning that market. Um, and uh, we were also the first company to be able to build portable code across multiple platforms. You know, one of the big selling features of Oracle back in the eighties was the fact that you could write once run anywhere. And, um, that was how they beat products that were supposedly superior from, from Ingress, from ask, from, um, you know, the, the hierarchical databases, uh, DB2 Oracle was, that was the one that came out as the winner. And the thing that, they really pushed was that you know you can write this code on a on a vax and it'll run on a mainframe and it'll run on a on a wang vs and it'll run on a on a prime um you know any you, you pick your mini computer you pick your pc you pick your mainframe your your database is going to run exactly the same way that was their big selling point we did the same thing for code so we could build applications that would run and look the same on a mainframe, on a Vax, on a on a PC, um, and we were the first, and certainly at that time, the only company that could build portable code. So those are two pretty significant innovations um, in the '80s and the '90s, and uh, and what's what got me thinking. I mean, I mean, at the time it was. It was it was a fun and exciting time, but it was also kind of frustrating because we knew we had something. We we knew that we were pretty good. You know, we got some of the best techies in the world. We we were building really cool stuff, but we were just growing at a mediocre kind of rate. And you know, not to say that we we didn't do well. We made a lot of money. Um, we made the owners of the company very rich, but. You know, you you wouldn't have heard of that company if I told you the name today. They just they've pretty much disappeared, um, and so it was a 
it was a big question for me. And when, when I left, when I left that company and I thought, okay, so, you know, we, we were about the same size as Oracle was in 1983. <laughs> why, why did they become, you know, a, a multi billion dollar company and, you know, 15 years later, we were on the point of failing. Why, um, you know, why, why were we so far out in front with this, uh, this software reuse technology? And, and today, it would still be considered pretty leading edge for a lot of people that are building development tools. Why didn't we make more out of that? And I, I, you know, I came to the realization and I started reading Christensen's books and I deconstructed how we had, uh, how we'd done things. And I, uh, I became pretty, I mean, I, I convinced myself that this was absolutely, that we didn't understand disruption and that we hadn't, hadn't, um, we we hadn't executed the right management and marketing strategy to become a disruptor. If and in fact that that includes product strategy as well. Because if we had tuned the product, we 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 built our products to be most useful to the very best people. You know the 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 one percent of programmers who produce you know a hundred times more code than anybody else. And the the problem, of course, is that's a small market. And then you try to sell it to everybody else who's got money, and simpler tools sell better. So there, there were, you know, a number of aha moments after I had the time to sit back and and think about it and deconstruct it. That um, that I said, you know, if we had done this, this, and this thing differently, and spent more time on segmenting, positioning on identifying the right users, building the right functionality on top of this great platform for those users, we could have been that billion-dollar company. We never made it. but So that, that was what got me interested in disruption and, and, uh, and basically trying to help people design it, how to design a company to be disruptive. So that's really interesting, but w- one thing is how... How did that, how did you get from there to here? Like, so you, this piqued your interest, but what, what sort of qualifies you to, to do the job that you do now? I actually believe that failing is the best instructor <laughs> and that, uh, and that um, I'm more likely able to tell you how to disrupt than somebody at Google is who's actually done it. Because a, a lot of disruption is accidental. And and my purpose is to tell you how to design it, not not how to fall into it. Are you working with a lot of companies at this stage? I mean, yes. How is how how disruptive is your consultancy being? <laughs> well, I, I, I've worked with a handful of companies, and and at any given at any given point in time, I can only work with two or three. I try to get very deeply involved with um, with my clients and helping them set their set their strategy and and um, you know acting as a as a acting CMO, which requires more than, you know, five hours a week. So my, um, my goal is to actually work with, with a few companies that are, that are willing to, to be 
to have me be very hands-on and to that they really want to be disruptive. So let's design this thing to work. Um, at at the moment, I'm I'm doing a couple things. I'm I'm working very closely with with one company, and I'm actually starting uh, starting to write a book as well. So that's consuming a fair bit of time. Well, uh, one thing you uh, emailed us um, before the interview, um, I guess a couple weeks ago, was a uh, a post by Jason Cohen, and it sort of was basically about dismissing disruption. I mean, I, I guess. He's almost reacting to the disruption mean. You hear every startup saying, we're disruptive, we're disruptive, we're in a disruptive market. And he, his, his sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, characterization of that, it was, it was just sort of a, a meaningless term. Um, I don't know if you, I think it might be a little interesting if, you could, if we could hear your take on that and what you think he's saying and what the uh, misconception is that you feel he's making. Yeah, so the, there's... There's a couple couple ways to look at that. One one is that I agree with them on on the on the notion that too many people are using the term and they're trying to present it as a marketing benefit. And and the truth is, customers don't care if you're disruptive. People who care if you're disruptive are investors and and the owners of the company, because if you are, you have this great growth potential. Uh, the customers just care if you're solving their problems, and being disruptive doesn't solve a customer problem. So in that sense, I, I totally agree with Jason. Um, too many people are using the term disrupt, disruptive innovation casually. And if you hear somebody tell you that they're disruption, that they're disruptive, nine times out of ten they aren't. Um, and it, it, <laughs> it's like someone telling you they're cool. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> show, don't tell. It's like, yeah, I'm totally cool. It's like, yeah, you're not. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry for the eruption there. Go on. No, you're absolutely right. That is, it's almost a disqualifier for being disruptive. Um, so, in that sense, I actually agree with this argument. But but he goes on at at some length to say, you know, I remember when disruptive was called a paradigm shift, and and <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, we uh, we used to talk about thinking outside the box and things like that, and you know. Disruption has nothing to do with paradigm shift. It's a, it's a completely different concept. Uh, disruptive innovation follows a very specific pattern that was identified by Christensen, and it's repeated repeated many many times. I can tell you who's a disruptor and who isn't, and you know, it, it isn't just the end result that matters. It's how you get there, because it's the repeatable pattern that I care about if I'm going to try to design it. Um, so. You know, to to the extent that he says companies should be worrying about making something that's useful, not how disruptive they can be. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that, except that making something that is designed to be the perfect product for your target market that serves an unmet or underserved need is how you become disruptive. So, I mean, that's one strong element of it anyway. Um but how disruptive you can be is very, very important to you and to your investors because that's how you dominate the market. That's how you, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't building products to make money. He was building them to delight users. But at the end of the day, delighting users made him a, a crap load of money. And so the disruption matters. It matters a lot. 
Um, and you know, when, when I, when I read through his, uh, his article, it just, it was very clear that he didn't understand what disruption was either. Um, he's just reacting to the meme, this, the simplistic meme, right? That's exactly, his understanding. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and when you, you know, I, I'm actually, I've gone to that page right now. I'm just looking at it. And, and when I see, you know, it's hard to explain the benefits of disruption. Well, that's true because, well, actually, it isn't true. The, the benefit of disruption is very clear. It's growth. Um, but the benefit of disruption to, to an end user is nothing. So from that perspective, your salespeople, your marketing people should not be talking about disruption. Absolutely agree with them. But the, your company management should absolutely be talking about it because it's critical to your business strategy. When you have a choice in a business model design to offer something for free or to price it um, sort of midway in the market or we're going to do a price giving strategy, which decision you make out of those three is going to dictate whether you have a chance at disruption or not. Other things being equal, it matters a lot. Um, when you say his next point was it's hard to sell disruption because people don't want to be disrupted. Well, that's absolutely true as well, except you shouldn't be selling disruption. Right? That's what, what I've already said three times is customers don't care about disruption and customers also don't want to be disrupted. But inside the company, in those management meetings, when I'm doing my product, my product strategy, my marketing strategy, it's critically important that if I have a shot at disruption, how I design that product and how I design my marketing strategy is going to dictate whether I have a shot at it or not. Sometimes it almost sounds like you should just say to every company, just make your product three times cheaper than everyone else's and you'll be really successful. But that can't be true. So what, what, how do you balance that out? Well, the other one he, he mentioned quite a bit, which seems to be very important, is, well, you list like telltale predictors in your ebook, And uh, one was, you know, seeming inferiority, but order of magnitude cost advantage or dramatically easier to use. And uh, we interviewed a company a couple weeks ago called Stripe, and they seem to be dramatically easier to use as a payment processing system well not necessarily being cheaper they there's some argument there that they might be as cheap or in the ballpark as the cheapest offerings but really they're vastly easier to use and um that seems to make the other key your key sort of trajectory you can either take the price advantage or the ease of use advantage is that is that accurate well there there are a few different attributes that matter um and price if you can Price in and of itself isn't what's going to achieve disruption unless your competitors don't respond. Um, what will what will help you achieve disruption is if you have um, at least a three to four time um, order of magnitude virtually guarantees it, but it has to be a cost advantage, not a price advantage. So when when I'm um, if I have a, a patented technology at, at the core of what I do, and Christensen has has in his books, he talks about steel mini mills versus the traditional humongous smelting plants. The the mini mill had a huge advantage because the the steel that they made was you know four or five times cheaper than than what the big the big mills could make. And as a result, that was a sustainable cost advantage until they drove all the big mills out of business. 
it has to be sustainable. It can't just be I'm offering it at a lower price. I have to have an inherently lower cost structure, which enables me to offer it at a lower price because I still have to make money. So it's it's more about the cost um, cost to produce, the cost to build, and um, and then my strategy is to offer it at a lower price point, not to skim more profit. Uh, price will almost always, in fact, in fact, price is one of the best predictors of low end disruption. If you if you can if you have a sustainable low cost advantage, you will almost always disrupt, no matter what you're selling. Um, but there are. And in fact, one of the, one of the the things that um, that uh, Clay talks about a lot now is the the notion of a job to be done. So people don't just buy uh, a product because because you're selling it. They they're if you think about it the same way you think about hiring someone for a job. When you're making that choice to hire or not, you you're you you have uh, the reason you you might be hiring a new programmer to get uh, to to work on uh, Plugio is because you're building a new interface that will help you address a bigger market and you need to get it to market faster so that you have a chance to capitalize on it so that's your reason for hiring well that's going to dictate the kind of person that you hire um, and the talents that they have, and so that, and, and so when you make that decision, it's going to say, "How much am I prepared to pay for that person? How important it is to my business? How fast do I need the job done? And what capabilities do they have to have?" And the same thing if I'm if I'm in the store and I'm going to buy it buy something, um, you, you know, a peanut butter or or a razor blade. When I'm looking at the competitive choices on the on the shelf, I'm I may not be looking. Um, at uh, well, say in the case of razor blades, I may not be looking at at razors as being the competitors. I might be looking at at a chisel as being a competitor, or a screwdriver as being a competitor. And until you understand the reason that somebody's buying the product, and and the job they have to do for it, then you can't position disruptively. And and so if you if you understand this at um, in fact, I've got I've got a very good example of this that, that I that I talk about, and that's the the Gillette Fusion Razor, um, which is, which is a very interesting example because uh, because it when Gillette brought it out, it was at the 2006 Super Bowl, and they they rolled it out with a five million dollars worth of advertising and a hundred million one hundred and five million dollar marketing campaign to introduce this new razor to market. And this is the super duper five bladed with an extra trimming blade on the other side and all kinds of incredible features. Um, and if you look at it from, from, uh, you know, where the razor blade markets come from, you've got disposables, you've got the two blade, you've got the three blade, you've got power, no power. There, there's um, been a whole series of sustaining innovations in that market. And if you were looking at it from a price perspective or, or simplicity and who has the who has the cost advantage? You'd have to say the single bladed disposable has the cost advantage, right? So so that should be the one that disrupts the market. And uh, and in fact, I, I looked at this originally as um, 
as an example of here's here's something that can't possibly work. I mean, who needs five blades on a razor? And you know, is that really going to shave better than a three bladed or than a two bladed? Does it really matter? And the way that Gillette marketed it um, at the outset was very much as a, as the ultimate sustaining innovation. And and I actually have it written down here for a few of the a few of the things when they when they first brought it out they they advertised it as being you know having five blades having a comfort guard having extra trimming blade on the back having a micro micro pulse power onboard microchip low battery indicator light enhanced indicator lubra strip enhanced forward pivot ergonomically designed handle spring mounted blades and I'm looking at all this and I'm thinking who the heck cares. I'm not buying technology. I'm I'm buying a shave. And and I think this is where, you know, the that incumbent marketer thing where their their mindset is we have to be faster, better, you know, and, and that's not the reason people buy products. Now, my own personal story about this and why I why I care about it is that I have sensitive skin and I could never use shaving cream uh, because it makes my skin break out. And so I was using a, a two blade razor way back then. And, um, and I often got razor burn and I'd cut myself and, you know, nicks in the cheek and whatnot. And, um, I had often wondered whether an electric razor would solve that problem for me. And, um, you know, because, because I really could only use water. I couldn't, I couldn't use uh, shaving cream. So, I had thought about this for a couple of years, you know, well, should I go out and do it? And, you know, it was always easier just to get another set of replacement uh, blades for the, the razor I was using. And, you know, you think, well, it's a couple hundred dollars to get a good electric razor and it might not solve the problem. And, uh, you know, I'll end up buying it and using it once and never, never looking at it again. And that's just way too much money to waste. So, you know, one day I was, uh, walking through my neighborhood Costco and I saw the, the NPAC display for the, the Gillette fusion. And, uh, you know, I, I just got thinking, maybe this is a low end disruption when compared with an electric razor, you know, maybe this is a good enough solution for $20 that would solve, solve my problem without having to spend $200 to find out that it doesn't work. And I thought, well, you know what? I waste $20 on stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I buy a nicer bottle of wine, and that's there's $20 gone, right? So, so I figured I can afford to do this. If I use it once and it doesn't work, I can throw it out. So I did, and then I, I realized, you know, it solved my problem. I, I, don't, I haven't cut myself once since switching. I, um, I have a smoother shave. I never get razor burn. All the all the problems that I had with the old solution were solved by this. And it was then that I realized, you know, they and what the the tale about this razor was um, a year plus after it was introduced. It was the first product in Gillette's history, the, the first innovation in in razors, not to become the new company bestseller in the history of the company. Now it is today, but you know, that's six years later. And 
what's what struck me was that here's a here's a failure to position correctly if they had, if they had targeted this against electric razors and they'd known who who would benefit from the features that this this product had they would have sold it very differently right from the get go and i think that the reason it's it's ultimately successful today despite having the most expensive cartridges on the market is that people like me figured out that it did solve a problem and have spread, you know, enthusiastically via word of mouth. So that, you know, the, all those expensive ads that used, um, you know, Tiger Woods and, and Andre Agassi and, and those guys, you know, I mean, why do I care if a sports star uses this thing? It's, it's, and how do I even know that they are? And they're not just, they're using their name. So the, the whole inauthentic kind of, uh, throw as many features at me as you can sort of marketing is, is, uh, is a big fail. And when we, if I think about it in terms of choosing the right market to target and positioning the product correctly, I have a product and it's, it's the perfect example of how a product can be both sustaining and disruptive at the same time. And it totally depends on, on what market you choose for it and how you decide to market it. Right, right. Do you, um, do you ever work with smaller startups as, as sort of in, in more limited engagements? I mean, it sounds like the four or five companies you've been working with are larger operations. I mean, do if a smaller startup ha- wanted to engage you for five to 10 hours for an evaluation and some general recommendations for how to reposition themselves, is, is that something that you offer? Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would do that. Um, I, I don't want to have to, you know, from, from the, from the perspective of the cost, my cost as a, as a business, uh, to, I don't have to engage in a lot of sales time to, to earn five hours of consulting business, but I would absolutely work with a company that, um, that, w- that I saw eye to eye with and, and was interested in doing, um, you know, being a disruptor. Right. I, I actually, right. I'm I'm way more interested in working with little companies because uh, I enjoy talking to entrepreneurs and, you know, hearing about their ideas. That for me, that's way more gratifying than working with a hundred Gillettes. Right. So, do you have? Is there anything that we missed in in in, in the sort of this interview? Things that you'd like to bring up or discuss before we uh, wrap things up? Um. No, I, I think we've we've largely covered it. One one, one thing I would uh, say, and I, we, I kind of hinted at this when I when I spoke with Justin, I think back in December. One thing that I'm I'm in the process of building. I, I have a tool that I use right now called the Disruption Report Card, and it's it's a fairly complicated spreadsheet that goes through a whole about thirty seven different variables, and. Um, gives a gives a fairly accurate assessment of of whether or not you're disruptive and what things you can improve to become more disruptive. I'm in the process right now of of building a simple version of that that I'm that I intend to put on my website and make available for free. Um, and I'm probably uh, right now about two three weeks from having that done. 
So I would definitely encourage people to, you know, come visit me in two or three weeks. Visit me today, obviously, but but I'll, I will have that tool available on my website um, that you can use to evaluate your own disruptive potential. Um, and it, it will be a simplified version of, of what I use as a, as a tool in my business. Um, so it'll make a bunch of assumptions and sort of default to middle values for, for the variables that I'm not measuring, but it should come up with a pretty good assessment. If you're, if you're honest in answering the questions that it poses. And this is at your website is innovative disruption.com. That's correct. But also, I mean, when you do release it, let us know, we'll be sure to mention it on the show and, um, Submit it to Hacker News as well. See if we can get you uh, get you some some promotion there. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Paul, we really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, explaining disruption theory to us. Um, it sounds like uh, we uh, we've we've definitely covered a lot of a lot of new stuff here. I mean, it our our, our understanding of it, I think, was a little simplistic. So yeah. I I really like how you filled it out. Um, and I just, yeah, I want to thank you for spending as much time with us as you did. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. We're out.